Welcome to the Health Leaders Podcast, the place for peer-sourced and solution-focused insights for healthcare executives, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. I'm Lori Bierman, and I'm the Peers Contributing Editor for Health Leaders. In today's episode, we'll be discussing workforce challenges and opportunities, and specifically how they are navigated by professionals of color. Joining me is Errol Pierre, Senior Vice President of State Programs at Health First. Health First is the largest nonprofit health plan in New York State, serving 1.7 million members. In this role, Errol is accountable for growth, profit loss, sales and retention for the Medicaid, long-term care, and commercial product portfolios. Errol holds adjunct teaching roles at multiple colleges and universities, including NYU. He holds a Doctor of Business Administration from Baruch College and Advanced Management Program credentials from Harvard Business School. He is an active community board member, including longstanding service with the YMCA of Greater New York and 100 Black Men of America, an organization which granted him its Outstanding and Dedicated Service Award. And last but not least, he is the author with Jim Germanic of The Way Up, Climbing the Corporate Mountain as a Professional of Color, published by Wiley in December of 2022. Errol, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. You too. So uh, The Way Up, which I have read and it find it just to be a tremendous, tremendous book. Um, it is described as a pragmatic and actionable guide to help people of color achieve their professional goals and elevate their careers. Uh, I definitely found it very pragmatic and actionable. And in addition to that is the way that you integrated so many personal stories and, and you know, some of them quite painful into the lessons of this book. Um, so for our first question, I'd like to ask, how would you describe the way up and what particular things would you like to highlight about this tremendous book? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, the way I describe the way up is uh, one part personal anecdotes, which talk about describe my path uh, climbing what we call the corporate ladder, but in the book, I contend that it's a corporate mountain for people of color, and I call it that because uh, it's not a straight way up. Uh, uh, I start out the book kind of talking about climbing a mountain. You have to be prepared. You don't know what weather is going to happen. You might have to take certain uh, circulus routes, and so it's not a straight path, and it's not easy. And so I first start out using my own personal experiences of starting in a warehouse for a beauty supply store. That's where I got my start, <laughs> my first job, to one day uh, becoming the chief operating officer for a major health insurance company and what that path looked like. Um, so I used my my personal story. Then I also used lots of data. So if you go to the back of the book, there's literally like nine to 10 pages of reference material that speaks to research articles, newspaper clippings that back up my anecdotal story. So what I'm trying to do there is say, whenever you see a statistic, there's a human being behind it. And so the data would try to matches my anecdotal story to um, the research that's out there on why there's not enough people of color at the upper echelons of corporate America. And then lastly, I had the privilege and the honor uh, with my co-author Jim to interview 11 executives of color as well. And their quotes are infused in the book. And again, it's just another reiteration that I don't want people to say, oh, that's just one man's story. 
to hear other executives of color from all different industries that explained literally the same story I had, showing at how hard and how much diversity they had growing up uh, the corporate mountain. So it's a culmination of personal research and then backed up by 11 other interviews from people of color as well. Yeah, thank you for calling that out because not only were your quotes powerful and your stories, but like hearing their, you know, reading, hearing, I mean, I felt like I was hearing them as I was reading it, hearing their stories as well, um, just uh, tremendously powerful. And, and I think, you know, what a thoughtful way to tell the story um, to, you know, for it to be as, 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 broadly um impactful you know as as it is um thank you for touching on each one of those things and one of the one of the themes that kind of stood out to me in the book um had to do with with managing expectations and i really there were so many lenses through which you presented this so it's not it's not only managing your expectations of yourself and others but navigating like the expectations that others, whether directly, indirectly, you know, silently are, are, are putting upon you as a professional and also for, for professionals of color. So it's hard to choose just a few things from that topic, but one of the things that we had um, explored um, were touching on, touching on three things. Uh, the career assessment grid, imposter syndrome and code switching, which we'll get into the definitions of, and then also the importance of allies, mentors, and champions, and how those are three very distinct roles. So um, of those of those topics, is there one that you'd like to start with? Yeah, yeah, let's start with um, the career assessment grid. So uh, I have this fervor to really make sure that anything I learn, I share with others. Uh, and the the it comes from the fact that uh, corporate America is the a lot of unsaid rules. It's a culmination of like a hundred unsaid rules. And so I wanted to say the unsaid and put it down on paper. And so the corporate grid, the the assessment grid is a great example where literally I was sitting down with an employee, walking them through their career aspirations. And so this employee was like, I want to be a manager. And I think we all have this, you know. Um, mentality of I have to move up. What's the next step? Let me just move up without asking why first. And so probing them, well, why do you want to be a manager? They're like, because that's the next level, because I want to make more money, because I want a higher title. Those are like the worst reasons <laughs> to be a manager. And so I said, let's back up and find out what work do you like to do? And the assessment grid really allows people to think through the work that they like to do. So there's different types of leaders. You have individual contributors. They are leaders in their own right, but they do all of their work on their own independently, and they don't need that much in intervention or supervision. And there's really good people that do that, like coders, engineers, they're individual contributors. They make a ton of money, right, at tech companies, but they don't really need to lead teams. They're not thinking about, you know, executive presence. They really just work on their craft, and that's perfectly fine. Then you have these matrix leaders, which are people who lead teams but those teams don't actually report into them. And that's a nuance that happens in corporate America that people should just be aware of, of what kind of leader do you wanna be? So you're leading a project, you're leading an initiative, you're telling people what to do, 
But then at the end of that call or the end of that meeting, they go back to their day jobs and they have their own bosses. And that's a leader that they love and enjoy talking to people. They love persuading folks. They love tackling issues, but they don't like check making sure people check their you know time clock and <laughs> doing performance yeah. ratings and does anybody actually enjoy doing that? <laughs> <laughs> it's true I don't know anyone that does but they they severely don't like it they severely <laughs> and so they're like I love leading people and leading projects but I really don't like having to deal with you know it, uh office politics or having to deal with reprimanding employees or having to deal with rating folks giving people bonuses firing folks they're like, I don't want to do that stuff. And then you have people leaders and people leaders are, you know, what we usually think of when we think of leaders is these people, you know, these are people who lead massive teams. This is your CEO. This is your, you know, chief operating officer. This is your um, head of operations. They're leading big teams. They're thinking strategically and they're thinking about how, how to galvanize their teams and get the most out of them. And so breaking that down for entry level employee is helpful for them to say, oh, I don't just have to be a people leader to be successful. I can be a matrix leader. I can be an individual contributor and still find success. And then the other layer of thinking of, well, where do you want to be in the business? Do you want to be strategic and start thinking about what the company is going to do in three to five years? Or do you want to be operational? Thinking about what the company has to do tomorrow or next month. This is like the widgets, you know, the trains show up on time. Or technical, which is I really enjoy building the tools that the employees use to get their work done and thinking about how the best tools should come. Like, the, so, you know, when the CIO decides we're going to use Zoom, that's the technical component of saying, I'm helping the employees get their work done, but I'm thinking about the tools to make them get their work done most efficiently. And just breaking down that assessment grid with uh, the employee, then we could really talk about what they want to do. So they basically plotted themselves on the grid and then it made the coaching that much more comprehensive for them. No, I, I was going to say, and I, I remember, you know, in from the book, you had asked her, um, you know, which which box do you want to be in? And initially she didn't know, but then she came back very strongly after you walked her through it and said, I think I'm a matrix leader who can sit between operational and strategic roles. And she said it very excitedly. And I was like, that, I mean, that is it. Like that is, that is the kind of magic that, um, we want to have happen every day and Absolutely. that people look to leaders like you who believe very much in passing on what you have learned. I mean, that I just thought that was like a tremendous story. And this relates to, I mean, it like you said, you can, it's very natural to go, well, I just want to, I just want to do the next, the next thing. If the next thing is this title and these responsibilities, well, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. Um, but one of the quotes from the book is you said that anytime you make a decision that does not align with your purpose and passion, you are placing less value on the very reason why you are on this planet. That was so powerful. You said you finished by saying it makes no sense to compromise your purpose. That lead, can lead us into a discussion about imposter syndrome and code switching. But is there anything that you'd like to say to, to start us off in response to that? Yeah. So I am so adamant about chasing your purpose and your passion and not retrofitting it into the role you have, but using it as a GPS to find the role you want to get to. 
And it's so important to be cognizant and take the time to find out why you're on the planet. Because when you get to a point where you feel you are doing or, or chasing your purpose and your passion while you're at work, it is so fulfilling. I had the experience of getting the title, getting the top job, having the C-suite position, and still feeling of emptiness in the, you know, in the, in the middle of my soul uh, to the point where I avoided going into the office early for work. I would just kind of meander the city streets, not wanting to go into the office until my meeting started. That's how bad it was because I chased the title and money and I did not think about my passion. And then once I got the title, I was trying to retrofit it and it just didn't work. And that led to my resignation for that from that role. And it was a very high role. And that's how I start the book. It starts out as yeah. a resignation, right? And it's saying, because I wasn't chasing my purpose and my passion, I started out the wrong way. And so now I'm just so more, much more adamant about that, telling people that they have to chase it. It's why we're on the planet, right? And, and, it's, what, and if every, it's like puzzle pieces. If everyone, yeah chase their purpose or passion, the world would be such a better place because we would be the highest forms of ourselves. And so I really just encourage folks to chase it. That is so powerful. And I think all too often people believe that they need to be given permission to do that. And they also believe that um, that the thing that they want, it has to exist as like a defined job or a defined opportunity. Oh, there it is. I can now go apply for that thing and do it. When in fact, if you're if you're leading yourself essentially out of this place of passion and purpose, you create roles for yourself. Exactly. You create exactly. opportunities. And um, but it's very hard, it's very hard to learn that you can do that and um, harder still probably for professionals of, of color. Yeah. And that kind of leads us into, I've loved that you told the story because it was a very powerful one from the book about achieving the role of, was it, it was COO, correct? Chief right. Operating yep. Officer. And then just realizing like, wow, I don't, I don't want this. Um, <laughs> I, I actually don't want this. And it's a very interesting tie to, Sometimes with imposter syndrome, which I'd love for you to define, you know, give your definition of that, you you may not know that you're being an imposter because you didn't really realize that you didn't want that role until you get down the road. And then all of a sudden it's like almost like being a double imposter because yeah. it's the the light bulb goes off. Do you want to talk a little bit about imposter syndrome and then also also code switching? Yeah, absolutely. So imposter syndrome, there's a, you know, a formal definition, but in layman's terms, the way I think of it is you have this fear in the in your heart of hearts that you're going to be uncovered as a fraud. And it's because you don't feel you belong where you are. And if you look at the research, it tends to disproportionately impact women and people of color. And so women in the high positions and also people of color in high positions. And what that comes from is you look around the room and you don't see anyone that looks like you and you inquisitively ask yourself, am I supposed to be here? And then because of the diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging efforts that companies are doing, you then sometimes ask yourself, am I a token hire? Was I just put here to check a box? Am I part of window dressing diversity stats? This is like internalizing this sort of like uh, embarrassment about yourself, uh, it's also uh, bringing up um, a lack of confidence in yourself. 
and you feel like you don't belong. You feel like you don't know things and then it's it definitely changes. It grows anxiety in, inside of you. It definitely changes your perception and it actually leads to poor work performance. So that's sort of how I describe imposter syndrome. Um, what tends to happen is you don't realize that other people are experiencing the same thing as well because right. it's not said out loud and you also don't realize that because you are one of the few at the top it's highly likely that you went through a lot of scrutiny to get that position so like for me when i was in that coo role rather than me saying do i deserve it am i supposed to be here i don't know the answers someone's going to ask me a question i'm not going to know the answer i'm going to get caught out like a fraud oh my goodness what i should have said is trust me for me to be 35 at this role, going through all the interviews I went through, all the background checks, all the reference calls, I should have got the job and I deserve it. And it's like right. changing your thinking rather than thinking through um, nervousness and having a lack of, of, of confidence. That's that's great. And what about you talk quite a bit about code switching yeah. in the book. Can you can you dive into that for us? Yeah. So code switching literally is. Uh, behavior changes you make for purposes of assimilation. And there's this strong pressure to assimilate to try to belong. And so it comes up in things like um, laughing at a joke that you actually don't understand because maybe, or maybe don't think it's funny either. <laughs> or it's not funny or it's not funny. Yeah. Yes. Um, it comes to keeping parts of yourself hidden from your peers. And so the example I use is uh, first generation Haitian American. My parents grew up in Haiti. And on New Year's Eve uh, and New Year's Day, our culture celebration is making a soup made of pumpkin and we eat as a family together. And the reason why we do that is um, as slaves, the Haitian people weren't allowed to eat pumpkin. So when they got their freedom, the first thing they did was say, let's make the soup made out of the food we couldn't eat in celebration of our freedom, right? And so for years in the office, Errol, how was your New Year's? It's like, just watch the ball drop. I was nervous and hesitant to share this cultural, you know, uh, piece of, of my life because I felt like it would make me different. I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to answer questions. I didn't want people to say that's weird. And so I sort of contained it and kept it to myself. Um, it's code switching. It's also things where you dress differently. You talk differently. Uh, you don't act your authentic self. And ironically, the more I code switched and the more I bit my tongue and the more I sort of maintained the status quo, the more I got rewarded. I, I probably afford my success in corporate America to the code switching that I did of keeping myself small and not totally exposing, you know, all of myself and being authentic. And uh, unfortunately, that's what happens with people of color. They get rewarded for being less authentic. And then they find themselves at the top, but they find themselves as a total different person than they really are. And you got to refine yourself. Um, so I talk about in the book of like realizing that um, I'm, I compromised so many things and coworkers didn't even know who I was because I kept so much things hidden. And so the intent is to be open and to share who you are. It's, it's scary because sometimes you're not yeah. accepted. But what's even more scarier is becoming someone else and not, not being who you are. That's that's a fantastic call out. You one of the other quotes from the book is you talked about to keep myself grounded. I remind myself that it is an unfair social construct 
to believe that professionals of color must be perfect to be hired or promoted or just to belong. While the social construct is pervasive in our society, it is wrong and must be combated at every stage of your career. And I think that ties in very much with what you were just speaking about. Yeah, yeah I, call, I call that the Jackie Robinson syndrome, specifically because everyone remembers Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier for baseball. What they forget is that year he was also rookie of the year. The only reason why he was <laughs> let in was because he was a great player, right? right? And it's this expectation that, oh, well, you must walk on water. You must be perfect because you're of color. And we have to get to a point where you don't have to be perfect. You can make mistakes. Right. You get some grace. Um, and that's a social construct. We always have to just remember that it, it occurs and stop it. That's the bias that stops promotions. That's the bias that stops people from getting a new job because they're like, well, they they performed at 95%. They weren't at 100. Like we we set a new bar for for right. people of color, right? And that that's or just like not... at least 100%, right? <laughs> the, real, the real expectation is more like 110, 115, right. 120. And you talked about the executives of, uh, that you interviewed uh, in the book, and one was Pauline Bent, um, who had been a former VP at Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and Pershing. And she had said, what was frustrating as a black female was that I overperformed and I was expected to overperform. Yeah. And, and I've seen, I have seen that in my own career with managers that I've had, I've seen that play out and, you know, it's, it isn't fair. It's not right. fair. And so I think, you know, one of the, one of the other topics I wanted to touch on a, a great, a great call out in the book um, that relates to what we've been speaking about is the importance of allies, mentors, and champions. And you really, you really peeled back, you know, the curtain on like these, these are actually three very different people in your career. They're, they're different people. They play different roles. They have different definitions. Can you walk us through those, those definitions and the importance that they have in, for all employees and especially for professionals of color? Yes, absolutely. So, Mentor is a trusted advisor, and the way I talk about it in the book is the word where the word comes from. So when Homer wrote um, the Odyssey, the Greek famous Greek poem, um, he writes about the protagonist uh, Odysseus, and Odysseus is going to fight the Trojan War, and he's going to be away from his family for a number of years. There's one person he trusts to raise his son when he was away at war. And his son was Telemachus, and the one person he trusted to watch over his son was mentor. And that's where the word comes from. And so sometimes we say, yeah, I need a mentor, I need to get a mentor. But if you think where the word comes from, this was a father saying, only one person I trust to raise my son like if I was there. And that's the type of relationship we should have inside of corporate America to grow. There was actually a Harvard Business Review study that said, 60% um, of the time, the reason why a black person gets promoted is because of their mentor. And so it just shows how powerful of a connection it would be. Both my parents were blue collar workers. They had no idea about corporate America. I could not survive and grow and thrive in corporate America if I did not have mentors. So I, I talk highly about one of my best mentors, Jeff Grayling, and it, it, mentorship is just the way of finding out where to go. Champions, and sometimes people call them sponsors, these are not mentors. They they see you from afar and they are in positions of power to use their influence to help you. 
So I always they say they're the person in the boardroom that talks about you because you can't be in that room. They're, they talk about you in the rooms you can't get in. And I had a sponsor, um, Don Ashkenazi, may you rest in peace. And he did that for me. He was in rooms that I couldn't get into, but he was like, you know who would be good for that project? That young man, Errol Pierre, would be great for that project. And he was using his influence to prop me up. And it's not like you can search out these sponsors or, or champions. What you really have to do is always have your best foot forward. Every day is a day you're interviewing for a sponsor or a champion and just make sure that your work speaks for itself. And hopefully, you know, you'll get one. Um, I think people probably have no more than three in their career, but they change your life. They absolutely change your life. And so you just have to think of putting your best foot forward because you never know who's watching. Someone's always watching. Um, and then allies is a two-way street. So I talk about specifically in the book, it's not just someone being an ally to me because I'm a black man. I can be an ally to you as a white woman, right? And so allies are two-way street. There are topics that impact me that it sounds better if you bring it up. And so as an ally, I would say in the meeting, can you talk about this issue about pay equity because the black employees are getting paid less? You bringing it up means it's not as emotionally tied to me. And then vice versa, if there was an issue around, say, you know, sexual harassment, for example, I'll bring that up as a man to on behalf of the woman. And that's where allyship is really powerful when we talk together and collectively think about the issues impacting us and then have that cross-pollination of I'm going to fight for you and in turn you fight for me. So sometimes people think like I need allies, but we can be allies too to our other friends. And it, 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 is, a, it is a two-way street. That is a great call out. And I think you called out, I, I love that you called out the two-way street aspect and also the nuances because these these things of, you know, I had a boss who would always say timing and presentation are everything. And she was right. And so what you pointed out about deciding, you know, with you, you know, yourself and an ally, what is the best approach to elevate a topic to ensure that it's heard? To assure to ensure that it gets attention, I think that is a tremendous nuance, and thank you for thank you for calling that out. So we're we're about at the end of our time, unfortunately. Um, how would you like to to close, Errol? All I'd say is, you know, I hope the book resonates for people. One, for people who feel stuck in their career, for people who um, are looking for real tangible advice on what they can do, and then two, for business leaders because business leaders may have employees on their teams that are of color. And I think this is a good vehicle to understand what they're going through. They may not say it out loud. And even if you ask them, how are you doing? They, they might just say, I'm doing fine. But underneath all of these things are happening in their brain. And so right. as business leaders, they can be in the best position to make the place better for, for corporate America. My end goal is that we don't have to write these type of books <laughs> because we have equity, right? right? So that's my end goal. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you for your tremendous expertise and perspective. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for listening to the Health Leaders Podcast. We'll be here each Tuesday for more healthcare industry insights.